0: do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The real threat was not the enemy without roman persecution in their context there was a threat but not the real threat the real threat was the enemy within heresy false or strange teaching verse nine and it has ever been this way traditional classical Biblical orthodoxy or teachings often seem boring. Whereas bizarre, aberrant, unusual, strange, varied teachings often seem fascinating. People will get behind and be zealous for something new, something novel, something strange, something different. There ever being an attraction to allegedly knowing something that others don't know. And feeling superior because we know what others don't know as a result. So new and novel and strange biblical interpretations will draw many, even though they are so often false, while solid, historical, biblical teaching is, as R.C. Sproul once said, the hardest thing to raise money to support. So given the the threat, the ever-present threat of varied and strange teachings, all Christians, and especially those who are given the responsibility of stewardship over God's church, all need to be on their guard to defend the truth. And one of the marks of spiritual maturity is standing firm in the presence of diverse and strange and even attractive but false doctrines now one of the reasons why the danger of false teaching is so constant in christianity is that our faith, the Christian faith, has an active, aggressive, real enemy, the devil, who is real and who constantly schemes to weaken and overthrow the faith of those who follow Christ. And in this effort, Satan employs, broadly speaking, two strategies. First, By persecution, he assaults God's church from without. But persecution, while it is threatening, while it is scary, while it is in many ways awful, and many under persecution over centuries of time have died, have been put to death. But through the history of the church, persecution has not proven to be a truly effective strategy of the evil one. For it has always been the case that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning, persecution has actually probably done far more to strengthen the church than to weaken it. Christ will never let the church go. Christ will always build his church. Christ will always protect his church. Even at times when the church has become very small in terms of numbers, Christ has been there. But nonetheless, persecution, by and large, seen as the big picture. When it's happening, it's awful. But in the big picture, it strengthens the church. But Satan's second strategy, infiltration. This has been much more problematic for the church of Jesus Christ in every generation. False teachers, false teaching, stirring up falsehood within the church. This word varied, verse 9, NASB, Or if you're looking at the esv the word diverse this is a word a greek word that is used in the septuagint the septuagint is the greek old testament in new testament times in the first century they they desired to have the word of god which for them was basically the old testament accessible, and the way it would be accessible is in Greek because everyone basically spoke Greek. It was the world's language. So you have the Septuagint. Well, this word that we find in our text, varied, diverse, in the Septuagint, it's the same word that was used for the multicolored coat that Jacob gave to his favored son, Joseph. Genesis 37, verse 3. And if you think of of Joseph's many-colored, multicolored coat, this is what false teaching is like. It is dazzling to behold. In the place of plain truth, false teaching presents something enticing. False teaching attracts because it takes some Clever angle on the truth It twists the truth Which appeals to our intellectual pride But it is a false perversion We must never identify truth on the basis of The sincerity of the one who teaches Or on the basis of the personality of the one who teaches. So many varied and strange teachings have caught on because they caught the imagination of people and became popular. And of course, we note in passing, false teaching that gets a foothold is rarely, maybe never purely wrong. So we are to always beware of teachings that mix God's Word, that mix real truth with the Word of man, which is false. And thus we should beware of doctrines that are new and boast to have discovered something that the foolish church has not seen. Virtually all cult groups that are derived from Christianity make the claim that they have from God the ultimate truth which corrects what is found in Scripture. Maybe it has some respect for what is found in Scripture. Maybe it says that much of Scripture is is really very good, but it's not ultimate. This new teaching, this new revelation is what is needed. And the church has not grasped this has not had this so whatever it is that is being taught that you encounter does it agree with the clear and pure teaching of god's word if it is a new interpretation of some biblical text or at least one that you have never heard before it doesn't mean that's necessarily false but if it is some quote new interpretation does it agree with what we read elsewhere in god's word remember what paul said galatians 1 verse 8 even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you he is to be accursed noticing that even if we preach a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you we are to be accursed this is quite a comment no matter how impressive the speaker no matter how impressive the speech even if it appears to come from an angel any teacher is to be rejected if what he says, is repeatedly at odds with and contrary to the prophetic and apostolic teaching of the Scriptures. And if one brings a different gospel of salvation, that is to be utterly rejected. And the one who brings it is bluntly to be accursed. This is strong, startling, striking statement. So again, verse 9, our text. It is grace that strengthens the believer's heart. Not subscribing to rules, or as in the example in the text, avoiding prohibited foods. Not the entirety of the Old Testament law, but the temple ceremonial system of laws, if you will, is over and done. It was fulfilled, it was pointed to Christ who would come and act, and then the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the offerings, the meals, they are no longer needful. The person and work of Christ is superior to all the old covenant sacrifices, offerings, meals, and altar rituals. The food laws, which he specifically points to, the food laws were pointing to physical health, not spiritual health. The food laws, more fundamentally, pictured holiness. Actual holiness comes through Christ. Observing the food laws made one ceremonially holy, if you will, and acceptable for Old Testament temple and tabernacle services and rituals. But they did not make one holy in spirit, in person. That comes through Christ. One could be holy in that sense in the Old Testament time through faith in the coming Savior but not through the rituals which pictured it. Not that they were invaluable but they they pictured it. We have confirmation of this about food in, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. When you recognize... Sorry to get on food laws, but this was one of the the extensive papers I did in my THM. Um, Food laws, when you study them, do seem to have much to do with health. So in that sense of health, they will be better for you. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 8 and 8 is talking about. It's talking about spiritually commending us to God. That's not what they do. Colossians 2 verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So spiritual strength, spiritual position does not come to us on the basis of what we eat, but it comes to us by grace, which is received through faith in Christ. Christ. Outward activities, therefore, this being the example in the text, and it could have been applied, it could have applied it to all kinds of things. Outward activities in and of themselves do not provide spiritual blessing. That comes through faith in Christ. Now, this all directly opposes... A principle that has been prominent in the history of the church. Which is expressed by the Latin phrase. Ex opere operato. Meaning, you don't have to remember the phrase. Meaning, by the doing it is done. Which may still seem a bit obscure to you. By the doing it is done. That statement was used by the church, the prominent Roman Catholic Church, to defend what Catholicism calls sacramentalism. Sacramentalism, which taught that you, the worshiper, receives benefit by outward participation in the sacraments, especially the Mass is so one of the reasons why in the Catholic Church, the Mass is so very important. You must participate in the Mass. You must participate in the Mass regularly. Boom, boom, boom. You receive spiritual benefit simply by outward participation in the Mass, regardless, and this is important, ex opere operato, by the doing, it is done, regardless of the inward disposition of your heart before God. Which is a staggering thing, considering how much God emphasized, even in the Old Testament, that if your heart is not right with me, then I am not interested in your sacrifices and in your offerings. and I have, I, 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 They're all worthless. And yet this principle has been taught in the church. Engage in sacramental activity, especially the Mass, and you are blessed spiritually. Now, not to simply pick on Catholicism, we see something of the same thing in what we might refer to as revivalistic evangelicalism. Wherein there is such a heavy emphasis on altar calls and fasts and specially worded prayers and the like, which have been thought, this is not officially stated, but... They convey the impression that such things have almost got magical power such that they impact us spiritually just by doing them. If the heart is not right before the Lord, no amount of rituals or gifts or outward acts or outward statements or prayed prayers, Provide any benefit. If, remember Jesus said, you are not right, I'm paraphrasing, with your brother or sister, do not come and worship until you have repaired that relationship. If the heart is not right, then all the things that you do in active outward worship are of no value. Jewish converts to Christ were criticized by unconverted Jews, those who did not accept Christ, because the Jewish converts were avoiding Jewish feasts. Naturally, they believed in Jesus who came to bring those to an end because he acted in such a way that all that the feast pointed to, he accomplished. Christianity was often derided often criticized because christianity did not have an altar for outward sacrifices now i was in the lutheran church when i first became a christian and we very regularly referred to the altar up front in fact the altar a table was central in the lutheran church the the preach this pulpit here is central but In in that church, it was off to the side, and the altar in the center was really important. But that's not what was really meant here. What Christianity was criticized for was that you have no altar for actual sacrifices. But we, said the Jews, have an altar that we make actual sacrifices. Well, here's what is said by Paul, I think, in Hebrews. We Christians have an altar from which... Those who serve in the... Te- this would be the priests. Those who serve in the tabernacle or the temple, verse 10, have no right to eat. We have an altar. We're making sacrifice Spiritually understood. We have an altar that they have no right to eat from because they eat from the animal sacrifices on the altar. From the time of Cyprian in the 3rd century the altar began to be associated with the Lord's table when we do communion together the table the Lord's table that third century Cyprian and on began to become associated as the Christian altar many Catholic commentators think verse 10 that the altar here refers to the Lord's table the Lord's Supper what they call the Eucharist, the mass, that's the altar, which we eat from and drink from. To the contrary, and significantly to the contrary, the 13th century Italian Dominican friar and priest, Thomas Aquinas, widely recognized in Catholicism as one who systematized Latin theology, And one who was widely recognized by Catholics to be a superior philosopher and theologian, Aquinas, interestingly, believed that the altar here in Hebrews 10, 13, 10, sorry, not 10, chapter 13, verse 10, he believed that the altar was the cross or even just Jesus Christ himself is our altar, which those Old Testament priests cannot eat from the term altar is nowhere associated with the Lord's Supper it is not found as a synonym for the Eucharist table no altar remember was present when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper in the upper room the word altar as used here in Hebrews 13 and verse 10, appears to be a sort of shorthand for the whole sacrificial action of Christ. Thomas Aquinas, I think, was correct. And as he suggested, maybe it's pointing specifically to the cross that Christ died on, on which he offered himself. Christ or his cross as our altar is an altar which the Levitical priests may not eat or they have no part, lacking faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what is meant here. Of the altar which is Christ or his cross they cannot eat but from the altar in the tabernacle or the temple over so many centuries even though once Christ dies it's completely illegitimate and so by the time you get to the writing of the book of Hebrews it's illegitimate but from that altar the Old Testament altar the altar that still existed in the days of Jesus' ministry that they could, the Levitical priests, could eat. In many, many cases, the meat that was sacrificed on the altar in the temple was given to the priests to eat. Leviticus 19, verses 5 and 6. Leviticus 22, verses 29 and 30. However, the critical sacrifice On the Day of Atonement, once a year, which the high priest alone made on behalf of the sins of all the people, that sacrifice was specifically not allowed to be eaten. Instead, it was taken, and now you'll recognize the language as it comes in our passage, it was taken outside the camp And burned. Leviticus 16 verse 27. So Hebrews 13 verses 11 and 12 makes the point that this was the sacrifice, that day of atonement sacrifice, to which Christ's sacrificial death on the cross corresponded. He is the atoning sacrifice. that day of atonement sacrifice was the one that the old testament priests could not consume they could not they were barred from eating it but and here's the point those who follow christ those who have received christ by faith those who have that relationship have his sacrifice on our behalf as our spiritual food remember John 6 Jesus talked about you have no part in me unless you eat my flesh the Catholic Church very quickly says that's that's the mass no he's not talking about that he means unless you have received me by faith unless you have believed in me unless you have partaken of me as your spiritual food you have no part with me So the passage before us today in Hebrews makes it quite clear from the Levitical regulations, laws themselves, that once Christ came and once Christ made the one true and final sacrifice, consuming the Mosaic sacrifices is inappropriate and it profits you nothing. Now this all challenges any notion that Christ enters one simply through one's act of eating or not eating certain foods. And that confronts the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, that is, that the elements of the Lord's Supper, they call it the Mass, are literally and physically the body and the blood of Jesus Christ Himself. When you partake of the Mass in the Catholic Church, you are understood to partake of His body and blood literally, simply by eating and drinking the elements. That happens, you partake of that, even apart from faith. So if you partake and you don't have faith, you are still partaking of the literal body and blood of Christ. Such teaching has, be, has become so divorced from any spiritual consideration of Jesus and his saving work that in numerous Roman Catholic churches, there is the practice of the veneration they're going to distinguish that word veneration from worship we would think they just mean worship but veneration of the elements of the Lord's Supper or the mass themselves and in various Catholic churches long vigils have been held where participants are simply adoring the bread of the Lord's table and the cup of wine because it's his body and blood Far from commending an emphasis on a Christian sacramental altar, our text today roundly condemns and refutes the entire mechanical sacramental system of religion. Converts from Roman Catholicism to evangelical or biblical, we would say, Christianity have been told If you convert, you will not be able to partake of the sacraments. You will be denied confession and penance. You will be denied especially the mass. The answer to this in our text today could not be louder and clearer. We have Christ in their place we receive Christ by grace alone and through faith alone. In him, we have an altar at which unbelieving priests have no right to eat, but we who believe, consume, and partake of spiritually. So now I come, going back in time, but coming forward from biblical time. I come to the Archbishop William Laud, L-A-U-D the English champion of the high church he goes to Scotland in 1633 and he finds no cathedrals he finds no outward displays of religious grandeur as he is often seeing in England, in London certainly and he reports does Archbishop Laud saying the following, Scotland has no religion at all that I can see, which grieved me much. But eternal life does not come by outward means, but by a heart inclined to the cross and inclined to the resurrected Savior through simple faith in God's word. Any system of religion that does not utterly rely on the work of Christ in his substitutionary atonement is alien and foreign and strange and not the true faith of the Word of God which is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and especially in his redeeming blood Scottish believers had Christ they don't need the trappings so our altar is Christ on the cross. When we sin in thought, in word, in deed, we do not rush today to the priest with an animal on a leash for sacrifice. We turn instead to Christ alone, whose blood paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Now, there is a comparison There is a contrast between the animal sacrifices at the temple, at the tabernacle, and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There is a comparison and a contrast. Just as the bodies of those animal sacrifices were burned outside the camp, as if to banish sin away from the camp, Leviticus 16, verses 26 to 28. So Jesus, note our text emphasizes, was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem as if he were a sinner. He never sinned, but of course he bore our sins on that cross. The animals... And Jesus shed their blood and died. But, in contrast to one another, Christ's blood was offered to actually sanctify and cleanse those who believe. While the blood of the animal sacrifices in themselves was unable to take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. The many, many sacrifices of the Old Covenant only pictured and anticipated the once for all and sufficient sacrifice of the New Covenant in Christ. Jesus suffered outside the gate, verse 12, by suffering and dying outside the gate or outside in this case, the city of Jerusalem, or outside the camp of God's people, Jesus is seen to be our sin offering. And the sin offering, not just for us within, but for all people outside. Jesus' suffering therein, if we understand what we're being told here correctly, took place in the public arena. It didn't take place in a monastery. It didn't take place in a holy place. He identified with the world in its unholiness. And while we are unable to draw near to God... Because of our sin, that was emphasized throughout the Old Testament, had to be separated from a holy God because of our sin, God draws near to us in the person of his holy son, who on our unholy ground, outside the gate, on our unholy ground, outside the camp, he makes his holiness available to us in exchange for our sin, which he bears and for which he made atonement on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice taking place outside the holy place in the temple marks therein the abolition of the necessity of holy places for sanctification and good relationship with God Christ's death outside the gate marked him among the transgressors Isaiah 52 and verse 12 though he was innocent of all sin he suffered the death of one who was cursed Galatians 3 verse 13 Though he himself was blessed above all, not cursed. He endured ridicule and mocking while he, we hung on the cross, Matthew 27, verses 38 to 44. Though he deserved nothing but worship and praise. In the same way, when believers in Christ stand firm on the un changing truths of the gospel of christ's death and resurrection they must brace themselves we must for similar scorn to that which he received from a constantly changing world no matter where we live in this world no matter how long we live where we live we are but temporary residents We may have been born in one country, and then gone to school in another country, and then moved to different countries perhaps a number of times, worked a job in yet another country, and raised a family in multiple places. I know that doesn't apply to so many of us, but that's plausible, and there are people who have done this, especially people who have served with the military, or been part of military families. It doesn't, any of it, matter where we live, where we we did this, where we did that, where we had this, where we had that. All nations, all kingdoms, all empires of this world are fleeting. Lines and names on maps change. We may often change our latitude and our longitude coordinates, but we have, now you come to the end of our text, no lasting city here. Here. We long for that unchanging reality grounded in God, the city which is to come. Because Jesus taught the truth about God, and about man, and taught the only way of salvation. He was despised and rejected by men, and he literally was cast outside the city, outside the gates, where he was put to death as one who is accursed. Jesus' whole ministry and message was outside the pale, if you will, of acceptable worldly religion. What I'm doing now is drawing application. He's outside the camp. He's outside the gate. This is to say, in effect, that Jesus' way is outside the acceptable worldly religious way. And he becomes the object of scorn and abuse. Outside the gate, he suffered and died. In that separation, there is established a principle. For all of those who would come to God through him, through Christ, outside the camp is where we go to find the grace of God. For that is where the cross was raised and where God meets us to forgive us our sin and accept us in the righteousness of the Son whom the world despised that means if you want acceptance if your goal is to gain acceptance in the courts perhaps of respectable academia if you want to be admired in the cocktail lounges or wherever of conventional and progressive, worldly wisdom. And especially, if you want to avoid the scandal of a religion that man rejects, the one that man vigorously rejects, then you may not have fellowship with Jesus Christ. You may not approach the cross by staying within the confines of the worldly city. For the cross is found outside the camp. But if you go outside the gates of worldly acceptance, not because you have some particular grudge against the world, but you go outside because you know, you see, that is where Christ is you will gain the salvation he bought by his blood to make you holy unto God. Since salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, we are exhorted, verse 13, to go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. bearing his reproach friends that truth of our faith that truth of christianity has often been suppressed the blessings of salvation cannot be had without the disgrace of christ's cross paul wrote elsewhere second timothy well 1 Corinthians 1 and then 2 Timothy. Jews, Paul wrote, ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. All, this is the 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't think Jesus could have been clearer. Following him means rejection by the world, this world. He said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. John fifteen eighteen and 19. There are so many who want to, in one way or another, tell us that to go after Christ, to be with Christ, to be in Christ is just wonderful, and it will all be nice. No, you will be hated. You must expect to be hated. Indeed, if you are not hated, something's wrong. So if we want to be joined to Christ and to his salvation, there is no way to avoid bearing the disgrace with which he was sent outside the camp. And we might, must rather, like Christ, go into a hostile world outside to minister. We can't do it all in here. We've got to go out there. We must identify with Christ and his shame entering into a genuine fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Paul further said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Philippians 3 verse 10. We are to be focused on ministry moving toward need, not moving toward comfort. Jesus suffered outside the gate Outside the camp of security, the camp of familiarity, the camp of ease. And as he went outside to meet real needs, we must go too. In the place of need, as we serve Christ, when we go there and we serve him there, he says to us, Today you will be with me in paradise. In the call to bearing Christ's reproach and disgrace, in verse 13, I think there is an allusion to Moses. The same word here for disgrace. The disgrace that we must bear is used of Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 26. Moses, remember, considered the reproach of Christ A greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt. Do you and I think like that? A greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt is the reproach of Christ. The real attack and approach of Christ that you receive as his follower. And he thought this did Moses because he was continually looking forward to his reward. Like Moses, by accepting such disgrace, we will lose out in terms of this world. But we will receive a greater deliverance from God. The concept of going outside the camp may also recall an event that took place during the Exodus. Moses was on the mountain, receiving on Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God. The people were worshiping the golden calf in the valley. Exodus 33 and verse 7 tells us that when Moses returned to the camp, he pitched his tent outside the camp of the people. He pitched his tent outside the camp of the people who had rejected God the people of God who had rejected God. And that is where God came to Moses outside the camp and in God's cloud of glory and he spoke to Moses outside the camp. And so the principle applies today. Whenever Jesus is denied as the only savior for sinners, whether in false churches, whether in faith, False families, whether in the world at large, all who stand with Christ must be willing to go outside the camp. But those who do decide to follow him outside, Jesus says, Amen. Or truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life mark 10 verses 29 and 30. So I think God's point is clear Hebrews 13 and verse 14 that we are called to forsake this world. For we know that it is a passing world, and we know that our inheritance is found in a place, the place to which we are going, that is not here. We often think of safe places, we think of our security being established by worldly institutions or by worldly authorities. Many are today experiencing stress when they see the world that they grew up in seeming to crumble all around us. It is critical, therefore, that we know that true security is found with the one and only with the one who overcame the world and that his victory at the cross has secured our salvation Such that wherever Jesus is, there is hallowed ground. There is peace. There is security. And there is hope and eternal life. So the choice that we need to make is the same choice that came to Peter and the rest of the twelve when the crowds had gone away and Jesus asked John 6, verses 67 to 69, You do not want to go away, also, do you? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And thus, we often need to be reminded that we, similarly, our citizenship is in heaven, and that we, like men and women of faith who went before us, should be looking forward to the city, verse 14, that has foundations, and whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11, verse 10. And then I know it's been long, but finally, and this may be the most important of all, Let's recall the heavenly situation or the heavenly position that corresponds to the language, to the reality of outside the camp with Jesus. We have seen this heavenly situation referred to in hebrews 6 and verse 19 in hebrews 10 and verse 20 it is referred to as our being in christ within or inside or through the veil we are in christ when we are within inside or through the veil We are brought near to God with Christ in his heavenly dwelling as God's children, as God's people, as God's flock by faith. Therefore, we see that to be outside the camp is in fact to be within the veil with him, in him. Not to be within the veil of the physical temple. It's to be within the spiritual veil in him. The physical temple veil, God tore in two to be removed, to access to him. We now enter through him, through his flesh, through him as the veil. This is why I titled the sermon, Outsiders Who Are In. This is what Paul meant in Colossians 3:3 when he said, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one day what is hidden will be revealed. The day will come when the gates of this earthly city that we dwell in now temporarily will be closed for judgment and destruction. And we will be glad to be outside those gates. Then what seems such weak, ignoble a place will be manifested in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth as the cornerstone of the city that never passes away. Bathed in the light, if you will, of the open tomb of Christ's resurrection morning. Behold, he says... I am coming quickly. Then speaking of that lasting city, the city to which we come, he says in his word, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Revelation 22, verses 12 and 14. So for now, the gates where we are, are open. We may still go outside the camp by following Christ. And in so following him through faith in his shed blood, we go inside the veil to the city to come. He invites us to come. He he tells those who hear him say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Revelation 22, verse 17. So the only question is, have you come outside the camp? Have you let go of this world and all that this world claims to offer? And have you come outside the camp and within the veil to Jesus? By faith in Him. Come. Let's pray. What we have observed today in your word, Lord, is a staggering spiritual reality which is foundational to everything. We must choose sides. We must choose your side. We must be with you, whatever the cost, in this life, in this world. We must reach out in love with real caring for those who are still lost. But we must be willing to endure the slings and arrows, and the criticisms and the persecutions the hatred of this world to follow you and love it as you love it. May we be found in you through the veil, outside the camp, but ministering to the camp as long as you maintain us in this life and until you take us home. Where we are eager to be, but we desire your will to be done and if that means we remain here for a long time yet we remain to minister for you we remain to live for you to witness to you that the world may know and that others may come outside the camp and within the veil we pray in Christ amen if you will stand now Go on out, which is the same as to say, go within, in him, and be blessed in all that you do and say and are in Christ. Amen.